Jude. Some of you know where it's at. Some of you need a little help. So if you start at the back and start turning to your left, you shouldn't take too long in finding it. If you start at the back of your Bible, you'll, of course, start with Revelation. And if you get anywhere other than Revelation, you have passed the book of Jude. Jude is the penultimate book of the New Testament, if you want to do it chronologically. Jude is also a rather obscure book, isn't it? Um, I'm going to guess that not many of you read Jude this week. Anybody? Anybody? All right, I did have a few people when I preached on Jude earlier say that they read it, but that was just because they heard I was going to preach it, and I think they wanted to impress me. Um, So, but people don't read Jude normally. I mean, we run to other books of the Bible, and our pastors open other books of the Bible quite frequently, perhaps, but Jude doesn't get a lot of ink or time. So I thought about that, and well, why, why not? And I came up with four reasons. First of all, the author, Jude, is not Paul, he is not Peter, and he is not John. And he's not, he's not a rock star biblical author, right? This is Jude. He's a little obscure, and we don't even know who this guy is. Who is Jude? Uh, you learn in verse 1, Jude is a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. There's a lot of James in New Testament history, so we don't even know who James is. So he, he references his brother, but his brother could be any one of a number of figures. So we don't know who this, were, who this guy is. Uh, if this... If, if the apostles, in, you know, in the, the, the New Testament authors were ranked in order of fame, Jude would be well down the list, wouldn't he? Uh, who is he? He also, if, you, if you've ever read through Jude, you start to encounter some rather, um, I don't want to say this in a, uh, in a way that, like, I don't want to say this in the wrong way, but you encounter some crazy references. Jude, Jude gets a little obscure at times and a little strange even in some of his references. So if you have your Bible open, look at verse 9 here. And in verse 9, Jude says this, and I'm going to take this kind of out of context just to kind of highlight the, 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 the difficulty with some of what Jude has to write. He says, But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment. And I'll just stop there for a second and just say, well, what, what in the world does that mean? Uh, that, that is not, I mean, you read this, and this sounds like some kind of obscure reference hidden in the, in the Old Testament. It's not in the Old Testament, first of all. And it just says that Michael, the archangel, was fighting with the devil for the body of Moses after Moses' death. Now, let's just be honest, okay? And I, I say this with the utmost respect for Scripture and God's Word. This is a little bit strange, right? This is a little bit unsettling because we've, we're not sure what to do with that. And, and that's not all that Jude has for us in terms of obscure references. Verse 11, he strings together a number of references from the Old Testament, which for those of us who are not steeped in Jewish history or Old Testament Hebrew history, some of these are a little strange too. Woe to them, he says in verse 11, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's heir and perished in Korah's rebellion. So there's three that, that Cain you probably heard with, fought with his brother, right? Balaam's got the donkey thing. Korah, who knows who that guy is? Maybe some of you who are a little bit more familiar with your Old Testament history know these, but Jude, again, starts to string together some, some fairly obscure references. This is not David and Abraham that he's referencing. It's Balaam and Korah. And then in verse 14, perhaps the most 
uh, difficult for scholars and commentators. Jude says, it was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds and of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. And he's like, well, I've heard of Enoch. He was, he was someone who walked with God and then was no more. That's about all we know of Enoch from the Old Testament. And yet here, Jude makes this reference to something that Enoch allegedly prophesied. But if you look back in your Old Testament and find your references of Enoch, this is not in there. So Jude is quoting something about an Old Testament character that is not in the Hebrew Bible, our Old Testament, which has given scholars a whole lot of stuff to write about. They get all, all frustrated about this. What do we do with this? Jude, one of our New Testament biblical authors who we're saying is inspired by the Holy Spirit, is quoting something that is not in the Old Testament, that is in, the, uh, that is in kind of these non-canonical, these extra-biblical books. What do we do with this prophecy that Jude is referencing? So not only is Jude obscure in his own name, he also makes some rather obscure, somewhat concerning references for biblical scholars. Uh, before I go on, I'll, I'll just mention a few things about that, because I'm not going to dwell at length on those stories. Jude quite often will quote some early Christian, early Christian traditions for engagement, not necessarily to validate them. So Jude will talk about what others are saying Enoch had prophesied, or he'll talk about this story around Moses' body, but Jude is not necessarily quoting them as Old Testament history. He's quoting them because they're just these stories that are around the church, and he's not necessarily validating them. He's just engaging with them. Now, the third reason that people may not pay attention to Jude is that it's a short book. Now, some of you may pay attention a little bit more because it's a short book, but most people, you know, a pastor can't get a good 20-week sermon series out of Jude unless you spend a lot of time on individual words, perhaps, which maybe we need to do from time to time, but it's hard to build a whole sermon, and there's, it's just a short book. Um, and maybe the fourth reason is, and this one to me is just a little bit humorous, but I get a little confused because there's no chapter divisions in Jude. There's a few other books of the Bible that only have one chapter, and so you kind of wonder, how do you reference a verse? Do you just say Jude 14, or do you say Jude 114? And it gets a little confusing, right? Because you can't say Jude 2, but... I don't know. For me, that gets a little bit. So I'm just going to say Jude, and then I'm going to say a number. We've actually voted on that earlier in our church, not in a congregational meeting, but just kind of in a quick impromptu vote. And we're just going to say a number, and hopefully you know where I'm going with this. So first of all, first question that we need to ask as we uh, and answer uh, as we uh, go forward in the book of Jude is who is Jude, right? We only know a few people, a few things about Jude from the first verse, Jude one, just Jude one, not Jude one one, Jude one. Jude is a servant of Jesus Christ. He's a Christ follower, a Christian, and he's the brother of James. Like I said before, there are many James in the New Testament. James here, most likely, most scholars agree, was the brother of Jesus, which makes Jude also a brother of Jesus. Jude was likely one of those who, uh, who was uh, a brother of Jesus, a, a son of Mary, who rejected Jesus in his day, some of Jesus' claims of messiahship, mocked Jesus, tried to put him away at times, but 
after Jesus' death and resurrection, when Jesus appeared to many, Jude was likely one of those that he made an appearance to, and uh, Jude believed in his brother as the Messiah, the Son of God, come to earth to save from our sins, and Jude followed Jesus. He became a servant of Jesus Christ, a, a follower of his brother as the Messiah and as God in flesh. He's a brother of James, who was a leader of the early Christian church. So tradition and likelihood make him the younger brother of Jesus, believing after Jesus' death and resurrection. Well, who is Jude writing to? The second part of verse 1 says that Jude is writing to those who are called, who are beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. Jude is writing to believers, but more specifically, believers of Jewish origin. And as Jude makes all these Old Testament references, we understand that those who are listening or reading or hearing Jude's letter uh, read aloud are hearing these Old Testament references and are familiar with them. They're familiar with these Old Testament Hebrew stories. And so Jude is writing to Jewish Christians in the early church. Well, why is he writing? Why, why does Jude write this little letter? The message of Jude's brother, Jesus, is under attack in the early church. In verse 4, you start to see that, that some are rejecting Jesus' moral authority. Jude says that certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So some have entered the church and are perverting the message of the gospel, the gospel of grace found only in Jesus Christ. And by their immoral behavior, Jude says they are perverting the grace of God into sensuality. And so some are coming and saying, hey, God has given us grace. That means we can do whatever we want, whatever we want. There's no moral constraints around us. And their authority is not in God or in Jesus Christ, the authority for these false teachers is in their own experience. You see that in verse 8, where Jude says and reminds us uh, they serve, uh, sorry, verse 8 is a, um, yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glory, glorious ones. So Jude says that there are those who have entered the church, who have rejected the authority of the scriptures, who have rejected the authority of God, who have rejected the authority of Jesus, the centrality of the gospel, and have said, it's, it, it, I had a dream, and I said I could do this, I could do whatever I wanted, and it ended up in immoral behavior, and sensual behavior, and this is perverting the grace of God. And so Jude is writing to counteract that and to instruct the church what to do in light of this false gospel. And in verse 3, we have Jude's purpose statement. He says, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith. So Jude's heart and his passion in this letter is that the church would contend for the faith, would contend for the gospel of grace in Jesus Christ. Now, throughout, throughout the Christian history, there have been those who have contended for the faith. And some of us hear that word, contend, and we may watch a little bit too much MMA or a little bit too much football, and we start to hear contend, and we think combat. We are going into this world to fight for Jesus. And there's a note of that. It should be with that sort of intensity. But as I'm going to argue here, what Jude is going to say as he tells us to contend for the faith is not to be contentious. He's not calling for us to just go out there and be jerks. Okay? Jude is going to call us, to, at the, in the end, he's going to call us to examine our own hearts. But he's also understanding that there are those within the church that who pervert 
the gospel of grace. Jude's concern is not with the atheist down the corner. Jude's concern is not with those outside the church who are doing their thing. Jude's concern is for the purity of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. He's saying we must fight for these things that are important to us. I mean, you fight for things that are important to you, don't you? Hopefully. I, at one time, would have fought hard to say that the Spartans are the best team in the Big Ten. After last night, I have my questions. Many of you would say that the Packers are the best team in the NFC North, and some of us would disagree. Hopefully, many, many of you men would fight for the honor of your spouse or the joy of your children. You will fight for those things that are important to you. And Jude says the church must fight, contend for the gospel. This gospel of grace, this gospel of good news, this gospel of Jesus, this gospel of the risen Lord is something that we need to hold dear. So often, our contention for the faith is seen in regard to those outside the church. And we look at the militant atheists, or we look at other religions, but Jude, throughout his book, is going to call us to look at the look within the church. He looks at the slip away from the gospel within the church. The New Testament is always alert to the fact that the greatest threat to the gospel is not from outside the church, but from within. We tend to slide away from grace. We tend to slide away from the authority of Christ and fall into all sorts of errors. Many have argued that there are essentially two ditches on the side of the gospel of grace. One is legalism that says that you have to do things a certain way in order to earn God's favor. And the other, some have said, is licentiousness, where you you can do whatever you want. Because God loves you, just do what you want. And so on either side of the road of the gospel, these ditches, I've seen many fall into them. Legalism says you have to earn God's love by your behavior. Licentiousness says you can do what you want because God loves you. Well, what's the strategy? What do we do? What do we do on this road? We contend for the faith. And Jude is going to look at two directions that we need to contend for the faith. Two directions our fight needs to be directed. First, in regard to those who are, who are perverting the gospel of grace. And then, second, in the battle of our own hearts. So first, and the bulk of Jude's letter is, is directed towards those who will pervert the gospel of grace. And throughout the first two-thirds of his letter, Jude's argument, is in his, his, uh, his, uh, his writing is intended to point us towards an understanding that God will judge. Jude reminds us with story after story that there is a severe judgment coming for those who pervert the gospel. And Jude's Old Testament references, whether they're of angels or Balaam or, 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 or Enoch, point us toward God as judge. God is judge over the devil. God is judge over the wicked. God is judge over wayward people. In verse 19, Jude sums up the opposition to the gospel by saying they're scoffers, they're following ungodly passions, they're divisive, worldly, devoid of the Spirit. So Jude points us then through the first two-thirds of his book towards the judgment of God. He points us towards the hope of the judgment of God. So what do we do? What do we do in the middle of this, though? When there's those, and, and, and it doesn't take long for us to understand that this isn't something that just happened in Jude's day. This is something that happens in our day. There are those who pervert the gospel of grace, right? 
There are those who say, because God loves you, do what you want. God doesn't care about your behavior. What do you do? Look at the end of Jude's letter. Verse 22, here's what Jude says. And I'm going to come back and cover a few things before this. Um, But verse 22, Jude says, Have mercy on those who doubt. This, This is becoming one of my favorite instructional verses in Scripture. Have mercy on those who doubt. How many of you doubt from time to time? There's things, right? You can put up your hand because... Uh, If you don't, then I start to wonder, right? I mean, there's doubt. I've I've been a pastor for 15 years, and I know that the church is just, individuals in the church just have questions. And sometimes churches aren't places where these questions can be voiced. Somebody says, well, how could God allow this? This tragedy, this difficulty, this hardship. And we can give our answers and point to various scriptures that that point us towards God's grace and God's mercy and how God can use even those things for his glory and our joy and our growth. But there's still that doubt that lingers in the back of our head. and We wonder, why is it this way? Why did God do things this way? Why is it organized this way? Why does it fit this way? Why does the timeline work this way? And Jude's instruction towards the church is to have mercy on those who doubt. So often the church says to people, stop doubting. And doubt is a serious, serious thing that needs to be dealt with. But in the middle of those answers, in the middle of that counsel, the church needs to have mercy. To be a place of refuge for doubters. Point people towards the truth. Point them towards the answer for their doubt. But in the midst of that, have mercy mercy. And Jude is very serious about this. Look at verse 23. He says, save others by snatching them out of the fire. Have mercy and by so doing, save others by snatching them out of the fire. Point them towards ultimately the mercy of Jesus. He says, to others show mercy with fear. So some we just need have mercy on those who doubt but to others there should be this fear of God's judgment that calls us to have mercy and show mercy and point people towards mercy Because we understand that God is a judge who will one day judge as he judged the people of Israel. And Jude has reminded us of that judgment throughout the first two-thirds of his book. Jude says in verse 23, the second half of verse 23, to show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. He understands that our flesh will fight grace. He says, have mercy, but fight Fight this battle against sin. Fight this battle for our souls. So Jude sees the church as missionaries of mercy towards a doubting, struggling people. This contention for the faith is one done with mercy, not just with swords. But in the battle, Jude says, and this is the most important part, I think, in the battle, don't forget about your own heart. A soldier must make sure his gun is clean, his ammo is supplied, is steady, and his health is taken care of if he's to engage the opponent effectively. And in the battle for our own hearts, Jude has some words for us. He says in verse 20, look at this, verse 20, But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Let me read that again, because that's, it's a tremendously important verses in Jude's instruction here. It says, but you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, 
And here's the central command of Jude's letter. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Now, what, is, what does that mean? Do you, do you wonder? Keep yourselves in the love of God. There is a wrong way to interpret this passage, just like there's a wrong way to interpret most of the Bible. There's the wrong way to interpret this. The wrong way to interpret this is to hear someone say, okay, keep yourselves in the love of God and think, okay, I need to be good so that God will love me. Keep yourselves in the love of God. I need to be good so that God will love me? No, that's not it. Because look at, look at verse 1 again. All the way back to verse 1. Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, what's the next word? Beloved. Beloved. Jude says, right out from the gate, you are God's beloved children. Those who have believed and placed their faith in Jesus Christ are loved by God. And Jude even ends his verse in a similar fashion. It says, uh, um, uh, or sorry, not it ends his verse, but if you look down at verse 20, he says, but you, what is it? But you loved. Again, throughout his book, Jude is intent on reminding people of the constant, steady, unchanging love of God. God loves those in Christ Jesus. Those who are in his Son are loved by God. That does not change. And so if we were to take this command, keep yourselves in the love of God, and make it something that by our effort we need to earn God's love and God's favor, we negate the whole argument of Jude that says you are loved by God. So this love of God is constant and steady, but Jude also then gives us this command, keep yourselves in the love of God. This is a little confusing, isn't it? And we're kind of going back and forth here, because if I told my kids, hey kids, I love you, now keep yourselves in my love, they'd be, I don't know what to do. Right? And if my father told me that when I was a kid, I would get a little confused and a little shaky. I would understand what, what's going on here. Jude says, keep yourselves in the love of God. And we it certainly cannot mean you have to earn God's love. Because that, that perverts the gospel of grace, right? Through Christ, you are God's beloved. Jude has reminded us of that. You will never be more or less loved by your heavenly fathers, dependent on Christ not on you. And because God loves his son and approves of his substitutionary work on the cross, those who are in him are beloved. So what do we do with this command? Well, while you can never earn more of God's love, you can put yourselves in a position to understand it and experience it. And I think Jude gives us some very clear instructions for the contention for our heart, the fight for our own heart for our own faith, for our own trust in God. He gives us this command, keep yourselves in the love of God, but he gives us three other commands around it that tell us how. He says, build yourselves up in your most holy faith. He says, pray in the Holy Spirit. He says, wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. All of these are dependent on that main command, keep yourselves in the love of God. One of the ways that we keep ourselves in the love of God is by building ourselves up in our most holy faith. In your most holy faith, Jude says. This, this, this phrase, most holy faith, is used to describe not our own personal trust, something that we just kind of summon up, 
When Jude says most holy faith, he's talking about the body of truth about God's love, the, the scriptures, the, those, those things that contain the story of God's love. He's talking about the Bible. The Bible is the story of God's grand historical work of redemption, how we have been brought into that story. And if you're not reading it and studying it and enjoying it and talking about it, you're missing the central storytelling method that God has for reminded his children of his love. So Jude is calling us to build ourselves up in the faith, in the story of God's love, and it's found in Scripture. So read Scripture. Study Scripture. Read and study it in community. I have a church in Verona that is largely made up of non-readers. It's not that people don't know how to read. They're incredibly well-educated. I mean, this is Madison suburban area. People are very well-educated. They know how to read. They're just not book readers, right? Most of our church works for Epic. They're young, uh, computer programmers, highly introverted, and um, that's kind of the nature of our church. It's a little bit of an odd group of people, um, and I love it. I absolutely love the community we have here. But, uh, th- but there's just not a lot of readers. I'm a reader. I love to read, and so I throw books at people all the time. Read this one, read this one. Every sermon has like three book suggestions, and there's no way I can keep up with my suggestions, let alone the people can keep up with my suggestions. But I keep doing it, and people just kind of say, I, you know, I'm not a reader. I'm not a reader. And, you know, our faith is built around this written word, God's word, and people struggle to read it. And you say, well, what do I do? How do I, how do, I do this? And here's even this command, build yourselves up in your most holy faith. The, the, the story of God's love and his faithfulness towards us is found in the words of Scripture. And if I want to build myself up in faith, I need to read the words of Scripture. But I'm not, not a reader, really. What do you do with that? I don't think... There's too many people in our culture who are not readers. We read. Uh, we may just read what's on our phones. Can't get it out too easily because it's blocked in by the microphone there. But we may read what's on our phone. We read our email. We are readers. Let's be honest, all right? There's no one here who's not a reader, first of all. Yeah, but I just I can't have a hard time really just plodding through Romans or Leviticus. Well, let's, let's start somewhere. And let's read. I think there's a couple things that we need to do. First, sometimes we're not readers because we're just not disciplined. Let's be honest. It just take what do we really, what do we discipline ourselves about? We get to work on time, we do this, we do this, but we just don't discipline ourselves around Scripture. But I think the other reason is that we haven't found the joy in reading God's story. In, in the words of Scripture, God has told us his plan to rescue his children. And there should be not just devotion to this reading but joy in this reading we get to open god's word and hear god's story of salvation sometimes reading for us becomes this duty and it just becomes this duty where we just do it we knock it off we check it off the list then we go on to brushing our teeth it becomes something that we just put on that list this is the story of god's love it's the joyful story of god's grace towards fallen, sinful, rebellious creatures like you and me, and we get to hear about Jesus here. So find that joy. Sometimes it takes discipline. Read it in community. So many times we just have reading as its isolated activity. Read it with other people. Find a few other people and let's just read it out loud. We'll read through Jude. We'll read through John. We'll read through the Psalms, whatever. But spend some time in the morning reading out loud with people. The Bible was meant largely to be read out loud. Find an audio option. Buy a CD or download uh, download it, stream it, whatever. Listen to God's word. 
be in God's word. All other resources must drive us back to the Bible. There is good preaching that will direct you into scripture. And there are good books out there. And they should send you to scripture. There's good music that should be based on scripture. And good podcasts that you can listen to that will have you opening your Bible. But build yourselves up in your most holy faith. And this comes as we listen and savor and treasure God's word in scripture. Jude says also, pray in the Holy Spirit. And I don't want to make this wacky or overly mystical. Jude is simply saying that you have this opportunity to connect with the God of the universe through prayer. God is available. And realize that you have an open pipeline to the God who made the world. He hears you. He hears you. And this sort of prayer likely doesn't happen surrounded by technology. I've found that the greatest deterrent to prayer for me personally is technology. Um, I have a hard time spending time in prayer when my phone dings. The Holy Spirit, I think, can use technology for God's glory. I'm preaching off an iPad right now, but praying in the Holy Spirit is a low-tech activity. And for me, if I'm going to obey this command, sometimes for me it's shutting off technology and going for a walk. Pray in the Holy Spirit. And then Jude says this and kind of wraps up this section. Wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Our perspective must not be focused on the here and now alone. The big picture is one of God's victory. We're waiting for that. We're waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. Judgment over his enemies and mercy to those united in him. So Jude says, keep yourselves in the love of God. Keep. It's an active word. Keep. It's a word that means... Uh, guard. It's used of military. It's used. Uh, it's used in the military. It's used uh, in 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 terms of a shepherd protecting, keeping his sheep. But it's not just used for our instruction. Let me conclude with this by showing you this in the book of Jude. Go back to Jude chapter one. All right. Well, sorry, verse one. I did it. See that there? Man, Jude, come on. Uh, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called beloved in God the Father and what? Can you see it? Kept for Jesus Christ. Jude uses that word kept three times. It's a different version of the word than, than what, what's used at, in, our, in our text there in verse 21, but it's a similar meaning. Guard, protect. Yes, we're supposed to uh, keep ourselves in the love of God by by building ourselves up in the most holy faith, by praying in the, in the, in the Holy Spirit, and by, um, uh, by waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we are kept for Jesus Christ. Look at verse 24. Now to him who is able to, what? Keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. God keeps his children. So in the midst of this, there is great trust and hope for us. While we are called to keep ourselves in the love of God, Jude says that we are kept for Jesus Christ, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. God is keeping his children. He's protecting them. He's watching over them. He's showering them with mercy upon mercy. And we're reminded that he will keep us until we stand before him with great joy. I love how Jude ends his book. After Reminding us of the judgment of God on those who pervert the gospel of grace after calling us to keep ourselves in the love of God, Jude gives this doxology, and I'll conclude with this. Now, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling 
and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Jude is a great story of God's love. This call to contend for the faith, this call to keep yourselves in the love of God, but this steady reminder that we are God's beloved children in Christ, and he is keeping us with great joy. Let me pray. Father God, our hearts so often lead us away from you. We, we don't know what to do with grace. We don't know what to do with this statement that we are loved by God. We have a hard time just simply receiving that and enjoying that. Lord, I thank you for this short, often forgotten book of Jude that reminds us of your steadfast, steady love, but also calls us to keep ourselves in that love. And I pray for us as we go out into this world with all its distractions and all these alternative stories that we believe, that our hearts would fall on you, that we would keep ourselves in the love of God through your word, through prayer, through this patience and waiting. God, lift our hearts towards the glory of our Savior, and may we be found in him faithful. In Christ's name we pray.